Ramble. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bada bing, bada boom. There's a video online that went viral, and it's triggering like the claustrophobia in a lot of people. But not only that, the video clip is straight up nightmare fuel. And I wish I could tell you that it's some sort of trailer for a horror movie, but it's not. It's a very real clip with a very real person trapped inside. Have you ever played hide and seek? It's like a childhood classic. I feel like every single person has played this game as a kid. You have this core memory of it. So essentially, people go hide and you have a seeker who counts to some arbitrary number that everybody agreed on and then they come looking for you. The first person that they find is the one that's the next seeker. It's honestly a bit of a scary game. There's like scary movies based off this game. There's urban legends of friends playing and they find someone that was never there to begin with. Or maybe you're going to go hide in a dark closet only to turn to your left and you see someone else is hiding there. But you've never seen this person before. Never met this person, but here you are playing games. So anyway, Sarah Boone said that her boyfriend George Torres wanted to play hide and seek. They were both in their 40s, but you know, age is just a number. They're still having fun in their relationship. So the two decide Sarah was going to seek, George is going to hide. But this time it wasn't a game. George ended up hiding in a suitcase. He was curled up inside. The suitcase was zipped all the way, basically completely locked. There was no way out. George couldn't move. He couldn't even breathe. He tried wiggling his finger near the zipper. He couldn't get the zipper down. He kept calling out for his girlfriend of three years. I mean, the one that's supposed to be looking for him. And he's screaming for her like, Sarah, Sarah, I can't breathe. Seriously, babe, Sarah. She had already found him, though. She was standing in front of the suitcase, recording him, struggling. And she laughed. So this video catches George trying to push up against the fabric suitcase, trying to get out. And Sarah's just recording the suitcase moving around. And all she does is laugh. She says, You should probably shut the fuck up. Shh. George pleads to get out and that he can't breathe. He tells her, Sarah, Sarah, I fucking can't breathe. Sarah, seriously, babe, seriously. He keeps yelling her name over and over again. And instead of helping him get out, Sarah responds, for everything you've done to me, fuck you. Then she laughs. And he's still still pleading with her. He's like, please get me out, Sarah. And she says, that's my name. Don't wear it out. He's begging her now at this point. He's screaming about how he can't breathe. And she says, yeah, that's how I feel when you choke me. That's on you. And it just keeps going like that for seven minutes with him repeating and calling her name and telling her that he can't breathe and her just laughing and saying things like, this is how I feel when you cheat on me. You should probably shut the fuck up. But that was the beginning of the nightmare. Because after Sarah records a couple of videos of her boyfriend struggling inside of the suitcase, literally suffocating, she yawns, walks upstairs to their bedroom that they share, and goes to sleep. George Torres was trapped in the suitcase all night, screaming for Sarah. He would be dead by the morning. 
As always, full show notes are available at rottenmanglepodcast.com. This is a newer case, so we can expect a lot of developments, especially towards the end of the year, as far as the trial and sentencing goes. Let me know if you guys want an update on this case. I imagine there's going to be just a lot more information on this one because the person in question, Sarah Boone, she's a talker. If you watch the interrogation tapes, which are going to be linked in the show notes, but she's just textbook narcissist. It's kind of crazy, and I'm going to include a lot of clips in the video version of this podcast on YouTube or Spotify, but yeah, it's just weird, so let's get into it. Also, just a content warning, this case deals heavily with domestic violence, so if you or anyone you know is struggling with domestic violence, just please know that you're not alone. I'm going to leave links in the description for tools and resources for victims of domestic violence. There's also links to nonprofits for those who want to support, but I just want to say, if you do go on these websites, make sure to clear your history, make sure to clear your cookies. And with that being said, let's get into the story. Brian's ex-wife is Sarah Boone. And Sarah Boone is not picking up the phone. Okay, this is like Brian's sixth time calling his ex-wife that afternoon. He's getting freaking fed up with her. It was supposed to be her day to pick up their nine-year-old son from school. She had every Monday and Tuesday, including alternating weekends. So if you do the math, it's really not a lot of days. I don't know. I feel like two days a week and alternating weekends, that's really not a lot to ask from. But even that was too much to ask of Sarah. To call her an absent mother is, to put it very kindly, okay? So we're going to call the son Logan. Ryan waited anxiously for Sarah to pick up the phone. He's like, hello, Sarah, you're supposed to be picking up our son. She always did this. If she didn't pick up again, then he would have to get ready and pick up their son himself. He absolutely refused. The last thing that Brian wanted was for his son to be the last kid standing at the parent pickup line, looking at his shoes, and the teachers are all concerned, like, where are your parents? Like, this is so awkward. Brian had called Sarah at 10.30 in the morning to remind her, hey, it's your day today. She didn't pick up. He called five more times. No response. He tries one last time at 1 p.m. where she actually picks up the phone. And Brian is about to explode on her. But she's like frantic over the phone, full on freaking out. She's begging him to come over. And he's figured that this was one of her games. That's kind of what he thinks of it. I mean, he never takes anything that Sarah says too seriously. She's always crying. She's always dramatic. Something is always going on between her and her boyfriend. She always needs help. Brian is kind of annoyed. So as always, he gets ready, heads out the door. He said he kind of took his time. Like he put his dog in the crate. He got his shoes on. He didn't rush because again, he didn't think that it was that serious. Sarah only lived a few blocks away. So regardless, he gets there really quickly and what happens next is pretty much directly in Brian's words from what he tells the police later. He opens Sarah's front door, crosses the threshold, walks in through the door, and abruptly just stops dead in his tracks. Because I guess he was looking at the ground, and in front of him, he sees two limp feet just laying there. The pairs of legs were limp on the living room floor, and the legs were obviously attached to a body, but he could only see the legs because he hadn't rounded the corner into the living room yet. Mm. And he's like, yeah, no, I'm not going to do that. He tells Sarah, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what's going on here, but you better call the cops. Immediately, he hightails it out of there. He U-turns. Like, he really did not want to do anything with this situation he had to think about their son logan clearly sarah isn't thinking about their child she had an unconscious body in her living room and she hadn't even called the police yet and to him he doesn't need to know everything in sarah's life he could already take a pretty good guess on who those legs belong to 
DeBrian told her that he wanted nothing to do with this. He demanded that she call the police. And with that, he left the house. But just to make sure that Sarah listened to him, he sat in his parked car in the driveway and waited for the police to come. So if you guys see the footage, um, she lives in an apartment building, but it's, it's more of one of those open air apartment buildings. So it's not this massive one building structure where you take an elevator. It's kind of like townhomes. So if you live on the second floor, you take the steps up. If you live on the first floor, your door is just right there in the open and the parking lot is right there. So he sits in the little parking lot and waits for the police to come. He had about two hours before he has to go pick up their son from the school. And there's going to be a lot of questions that the police are going to want to ask him. And if anyone wanted to know about Sarah, Brian was as good a place to start. He had known Sarah for the past 20 years. Yeah, so Brian fell in love with Sarah when he was just 23 years old. And I feel like that seemed like a lifetime ago. They're in their 40s now. He felt that she was different. Like when they were in their 20s, when they met, she wasn't like the other girls. That was kind of the feeling. She was incredibly spontaneous, very adventurous. And he just felt like life was exciting when he was around Sarah. There was so much adrenaline and this rush of energy that was constantly around her. But after the two get married, they have Logan, their first kid, their only kid. That spontaneity starts to feel like a liability. It starts, to, it starts to feel like instability. Sarah would go out at night whenever she felt like it, which I guess would have been fine if she didn't have a child that depended on her. She starts drinking more than she did before having the kid. I, I guess she was going through it. Maybe she felt the need to overcompensate for the fact that she was a mom now. She starts drinking again like she had just turned 21. Like that's the energy. Whenever she got drunk, she was just really gross. Like really, really, really mean. She's a mean drunk. And she would get a little bit violent. So side note, any bit of violence is way too much violence. And it's completely unacceptable. But according to Brian, she wasn't like super violent. That's how he describes it. She would get drunk. She would yell and push and shove Brian around. And eventually, Brian was kind of fed up with her. He's like, I'm not just responsible for myself. I'm responsible for this whole child, this whole little human being. So I have to think about Logan. He packs their things, takes Logan, moves in with his parents, and they were officially separated for a while. Sarah had stayed in the family home. But, you know, what do they say? Like, space makes the heart grow fonder. Because that's kind of what happened here. Sarah promises. She's like, babe, I promise. I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to tone down the drinking. I'm going to get my life together. I'm going to be the best mom you've ever seen. They both agree to attempt marriage counseling as this last-ditch effort to save their relationship. Eventually, Brian and Logan actually move back into the family home. So for a while, things are looking up. Not really, because it only takes a few weeks of living together to see that Sarah has like no intention, zero intention of changing at all whatsoever. So on weekdays, Brian would leave for work. He works like a nine to five job. Logan would be at school and Sarah would be home alone. So she would sneak out of the empty house and she wouldn't come home until like three in the morning on a weekday. And it's not like she had any shame. She didn't even sneak back into the house at 3 a.m. like apologizing, acting like she got, oh, I was so distracted by the time. I didn't know where the time went. She didn't even do any of that. She would come home loudly and she would bring random bar hoppers back home with her. Like random what? strangers she met at the bar into a house where her child is sleeping. But she is still married to yeah. the guy. Yeah. And they would come over and tear up the entire kitchen, making so much noise without a single concern for her sleeping child. Basically, every night, Brian was woken up after a long day of work, raising their child like a single father. And every night, he's woken up by Sarah and her friends making noise downstairs. He was just that much closer to leaving her officially this time. The final straw came when 
One time, a stranger burst through their front door, like a strange man, in the middle of the night. And he's like, Sarah! Sarah! Just screaming Sarah's name, demanding to know where the hell Sarah was. I think it really freaked out Logan, their son, because Brian had enough. He divorced Sarah, bought her out of her portion of the house, but he and Logan stayed nearby because, you know, Brian still wanted Logan to be around his mom, have some sort of stability in his life, which technically, as far as co-parenting goes, these two were supposed to have the perfect setup. Sarah moved into an apartment complex down the street. She's in walking distance from Logan and Brian, which is really unfair for Logan because when Sarah was living with them, She was bringing home strangers in the middle of the night, never being a good mom, never paying attention to Logan, never giving him love or care. And now that she's moved out, she lives down the block within walking distance and she still makes no effort in trying to see her son. Sarah would give Brian the weakest excuses on why she couldn't even go over and see Logan. It was always, I want to stay up tonight and drink. I need to sleep in tomorrow. It's been a rough night. By the way, she's unemployed. So she's just drinking. She would say things like, it's not a good day for me right now. Logan is nine, so he's old enough to know what's going on, but I think he's too young to realize that it's not his fault. He's just a little kid. Sarah, she's way too busy with her new roommate slash new boyfriend, George Torres. Now, remember how Sarah had told Brian that she was going to stop going out while they were separated, and that's the whole reason he moved back in? She lied. While they were separated, Sarah had gone to all these bars, and she ran into a man by the name of George Torres, and he's going to be very important to today's case. He's the victim. And he moves in with Sarah into her apartment. And this makes it seem like he doesn't pay rent, which he totally does. But anyway, the two had met at a bar and George was 39 when he met Sarah. And there's just not much that we know about his life before Sarah. Like, here's all we know so far. He comes from a huge traditional Hispanic American family. He has three kids. One of his daughters said whenever she thinks about her dad, she just thinks about how much he loves his kids. He was just obsessed with his kids. But he was, he was really not a perfect person. Okay, so George struggled a lot with anger issues. Even before he met Sarah, he was, he was going through it. He was going through a lot in life. He and his brother had got into a physical altercation and it had gotten so bad, George needed to get facial reconstruction surgery afterwards. So there was just a lot of, um, there was a lot of anger inside of him. There was a lot of violence. And the situation did not get any better after he started dating Sarah. Because both of them, they're just not in the best state. Right from the get-go, their relationship is marred with domestic violence police reports. In 2018, both of them were arrested for charges relating to domestic violence. So it's 2 a.m. when an officer is called out to their residence, the apartment building, and he knocks on the door. Sarah opens it, and she's got this black eye. She tells the officer that she and George, her boyfriend, had gotten into this huge verbal fight and he dragged her downstairs and kicked her in the eye. She said this was all because she had asked another man at the bar for a cigarette. And they came home and he beat her up. The officer is like, okay, well, is your boyfriend home? Like, let me talk to George. He goes to talk to George and gets his side of the story. George had strangulation marks around his neck that were visible to the officer. So the officer is like, what's going on with your neck? George said that the two of them were struggling at the top of the stairs when Sarah started strangling him. She just wrapped her hands around his neck and started digging her nails into his skin. He claimed that he could only get her off of him by kicking her. He didn't know if he kicked her in the eye or not. I mean, I guess I did, you know, because she has got a black eye, but it was just chaotic. I was just trying to get her off of me because she was strangling me. 
the officer could not tell who the primary aggressor was in this situation. And neither of them wanted to give further statements or even press charges. So the officer went ahead and arrested the both of them. Sarah got a third-degree criminal felony charge for the strangulation, and George was hit with a first-degree misdemeanor for battery, which is a much lesser charge. Mm, yeah. Okay. So it, it does seem like the police kind of are like, yeah, the strangulation marks are pretty intense. So Brian was the one who bailed Sarah out of jail. The next year, it happened again. Okay, I yeah. imagine like maybe the strangulation... It's a much lengthier process. process. Yeah. Like it's much like in control of someone rather than like one punch. One maybe. kick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. Agreed. Because it's like, you know, you really have to put a lot of thought into it. Like it usually takes a while to like yeah. choke someone. And leave right? marks. Yeah. But it happened again. The next year, July 2019, George was arrested and charged with the same thing. First degree misdemeanor for battery. This time, Sarah went ahead and filed a non-hostile no-contact order. So this basically means George is to have limited physical and verbal contact with Sarah. And according to the order, he's not allowed to be aggressive with her at all. So this is kind of different from a hostile no-contact order, which means you can't even talk to the person. It's also said that George couldn't consume drugs or alcohol or live in the same apartment as Sarah. So George ends up moving back in with his dad for a little while. And this isn't the first time, though, okay? Even before this no-contact order, George was constantly moving in and out of his dad's house. He would fight with Sarah. She would dramatically gather all his things, kick him out. He would move out, move in with his dad. And then three days later, they would make up, and then he would move out of his dad's house. And George's dad was so fed up with this, he walked up to Sarah one day and said, either you and George live together, or he doesn't live with you. Like, enough with this back and forth. He was tired of Sarah kicking George out of the house whenever they disagreed on the smallest little thing, and then they would make up and repeat the process all over again. I mean, it was so, 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 so toxic. Side note, George's dad was not the only one that was fed up with everything that was going on between this couple. When the fights would get bad, Sarah would call Brian in the middle of the night, crying about how mean and how evil George was, asking him to come get her, but he would refuse. He had a young child at home. He was tired of the constant drama. And it just got to the point where he didn't even believe Sarah when she was crying, honestly. He felt like she was doing it for attention. And he wasn't going to subject their child to this type of just toxic drama. So this time, George moves in with his dad. And within three days, he violates the no contact order. Now, we don't know exactly what he did but we can imagine that it has something to do with domestic violence because he was arrested once more and held on a $15,000 bond. This time, Sarah did not pay for it. George pled not guilty. He was sentenced to probation. And there's a few other instances where George was arrested for domestic violence charges, but September of 2019 was a bigger charge, and it's kind of one that stands out. And it, it's, it's closer to the crime in question. Sarah called the police on George and accused him of punching her on the side of the face. Sure enough, there's scratch marks and dried blood near her ear on the side of her face. She emotionally tells the officers that she's upstairs and George kept yelling for her to come downstairs. And when she didn't come down, he ran upstairs, busted down the door, started cursing at her, yelling at her, and then he punched her on the side of the head. She managed to run out of the apartment and call the police. When the police went to speak with George, he said he knew he was in trouble again. But he stated that Sarah hit him too. Sarah hit him often. He just would never call the police about it. So this happens a lot more than you would think because 
I guess men are always seen as the aggressors and women as the victims when it comes to these heterosexual relationships, which like, yes, a lot of cases we talk about deal with female victims and male perpetrators, but domestic violence can happen to anyone. Men typically have a harder time coming out as victims because I guess they're seen as weak. They're told, oh, we'll just stand up to your abuser. Technically, you could physically overpower your abuser. That's most likely why George didn't report a lot of the instances when Sarah hit him. We just have all the instances where Sarah reported him. And again, I'm not defending George. Like, he definitely hit Sarah. There was definitely mutual, abusive, domestic violence reports. But he wasn't perfect. He was definitely not a great boyfriend. And there's no excuse for that. But I just think it's a little bit more complicated. I think it's a bit more than, oh, George is just an abuser. And Sarah is this battered woman. Anyway, George was arrested once more. But Sarah would eventually drop the charges yet again. And I just, I feel like this is one of those cases where these two seemingly volatile people, they just bring out the very worst in each other. George is trying to work through his anger issues, though. He would go to these domestic violence prevention classes. And Sarah even said she saw changes in him. He would come home heartbroken after watching videos. Um, They would show him like these emotional videos about what domestic violence does to victims. He would apologize over and over and over again to Sarah and he would tell her, you know, my heart breaks every time I watch these videos. Does he change completely? Probably not. But it does seem like he's trying to. He's trying to put the effort into being a better person and being a better partner for Sarah. He would come home all excited and he would show Sarah all the notes that he took during these classes, during his anger management class, and how he was going to change and improve himself. The problem was, Sarah was not putting in the same effort. And then the 911 call came. Let Tend Dental make your dream smile a reality. We offer a variety of top-rated treatments, including Invisalign aligners. And for a limited time, Tend is offering $750 off orthodontic treatments. Offer valid through January 31st, so don't wait. Visit hellotend.com slash sale. That's hellotend.com slash sale. And book your free consult today. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. It's 1 p.m. Sarah flatly tells the operator, my boyfriend is dead. The operator told her that she was going to be transferring her to the fire department and Sarah can be heard over the phone screaming, no, please don't go. So it might seem originally like she's screaming to the operator since, I don't know, maybe she's panicked that her boyfriend is dead. She doesn't want to be transferred. She doesn't want to be put on hold. That's that's very usual. But it's also later suspected, we later learn that she's probably begging her ex-husband Brian to not leave. Because remember, he walked in, saw the limp feet, and then you turned out of there. So she's probably screaming at him. The operator asks Sarah to describe what was going on, and she tells them that she and her boyfriend George were playing hide-and-seek last night. He got into a suitcase, she zipped him up, which, okay, so this part doesn't really require a stretch of the imagination. Like, I feel like we all have some sort of memory that is similar to this. Maybe not zipped up, but, you know, we've all crawled into a suitcase, or he, he, I, I don't know why. I feel like that's, like, a core memory for everyone. Maybe not zipped all the way, but you, like, hide in there. This is not that crazy. But the next part is, 
She goes on to explain that she zipped him up fully in the suitcase, forgot that he was in there, and went upstairs to go to sleep. She woke up this morning and realized, holy shit, my boyfriend is still in the suitcase. So she ran downstairs, opened up the suitcase, found him curled up inside, unresponsive, and face purple from the lack of oxygen. And like, even that part of the story is so bizarre, but there's already so many holes. The first being, when you play hide and seek, Sarah's saying it was just the two of them. And since George was hiding, we can assume that Sarah was the seeker. So George is asking the seeker to help hide him. Like, that doesn't even sound like hide and seek. Mm -hmm. Was the plan to zip up George in the suitcase and then Sarah would wander around the house, pretend to have amnesia and go looking for him, like, as if she had no idea where he was? And after a good old giggle, she'd be like, oh my God, you're in the suitcase. This is crazy. Okay, fine. Let's just say that happened. They play hide and seek a little peculiarly, but what's next? She falls asleep, forgetting that her literal boyfriend, the man that she sleeps next to, is not in the bed with her and instead locked in the suitcase downstairs, screaming your name to get out. Like, you know that time before you fall asleep, you're staring at the ceiling, you're running through like all those anxious moments you had throughout the day or just the most random thoughts come to mind and you're telling me not once did she think of George a single time. She just fell asleep, forgot that he was unable to make it to bed because, I don't know, he was trapped in a suitcase. And this isn't even the full unbelievable story of Sarah Boone. This is just her initial report to the police. We're going to get to her full version of events later. But right now, she's still on the phone with 911 and she tells them he has like blood coming out of his mouth and I don't know, he had like an aneurysm or something. So I think at this point, Sarah is just grabbing at any medical term that sounds serious. Because side note, an aneurysm is when the wall of a vein, like a blood vein, is thin and the blood pushes against that spot and it forms like this little balloon that's protruding from the regular vein shape. And sometimes it can burst. I did a quick Google search and I'm sure medical professionals or anyone who suffered from this knows a million times more than I do. But a quick Google search tells me the main symptoms are bad migraines, vision impairment, and or balance issues. Like, I do not see turning purple and suffocating to death as one. So I don't know why she feels the need to tell this to the operator, but she's like, I think he has an aneurysm. So at this point, it's obvious that Georgia has passed, right? Yes. But is she saying that to the... Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. She's like, he's dead. He's dead. And the crazy thing is, you know, the fire department keeps instructing her to give George CPR. But Sarah declines and says that she already did. And she doesn't think that she needs to continue giving CPR because he's dead. She says that she knows he's dead. And I quote, just by looking at him, you can tell. Again, that is just so weird to me. Even if I knew someone that I love, logically speaking, is dead, like logically in my brain, I'm like, yeah, this person has passed. Even if I knew that, I feel like as a human, you would perform CPR for I don't know for as long as it takes like we've heard stories especially even during like the Itaewon incident if you guys remember that video but people refused to give up CPR even after 45 minutes like there were passerbys who had to pull them off letting them know like your loved one is gone your loved one is gone is she crying no she's pretty like emotionally flat I mean I just feel like if that ever happened to you someone would have to get one of those cranes and physically rip me off of you i just don't know how she can opt out of giving cpr to her boyfriend the fire department is like yeah no uh give him cpr regardless of what you think okay do it anyway and at one point she mentions that george had gurgled which you would think would be a promising sign of life for any concerned partner but the fire department have to practically beg her to keep giving him cpr 
Sarah starts counting out loud to show the fire department over the phone like, look, see, I'm giving him CPR. And this next part is pure speculation. But just listen. A lot of people who listen to the 911 tapes, they speculate and they allege that it doesn't sound like she's giving anyone CPR. CPR takes a whole lot of force. Like every one minute of giving compressions is a full body hit workout. She's not panting at all. In fact, her breathing seems pretty mm. freaking steady. It's like she's okay. just counting. Yeah, maybe she's not really trying. Yeah, or she's just sitting there like one, two, three. Like Sarah's still on the phone with the police when they get to her apartment. And that's why we know how Sarah reacts to George's confirmed death. The police get there and they tell Sarah that there's nothing more that they can do for George anymore. He's gone. Sarah basically responds with silence. Like, nothing. She doesn't even say anything. She just stares at the officers. But it's not even like, oh, she's in so much shock. She's staring because she's comatose. The police pull her outside and they ask her to tell them again what happened. Start from the beginning. Don't leave anything out. And this is Sarah's ex just excuse the language, but this is her batshit crazy story. And it's so far-fetched and bizarre. I don't even I don't even know what to say. Other than please take everything with a grain of salt. Now, there's a ton of footage on this case. There's um, what Sarah told the police over the phone. There's what Sarah told the police in front of her house while the other officers were inside taping off the apartment as an active crime scene. And then there's footage of her later in an interrogation room that's like two hours long. But for clarity purposes, I'm going to give you the more chronological timeline of her little story. But it might not have happened all in one sitting, if that makes sense. Because she mm -hmm. keeps repeating herself. So some parts are going to be taken from when she's outside the apartment. Some parts are taken from the interrogation because mm. again she just keeps repeating herself so sarah was kept outside her house for a while as the other officers are inside taping off the crime scene brian was also being questioned outside the house because remember the ex-husband he was waiting in the car for the police to arrive i think he was the way that i see it i saw some people commenting that he looks way too happy telling the police what happened and i don't think it's happiness I think it's adrenaline. I think maybe it's also the fact that he's trying to go by the book for everything because he knows Sarah. He doesn't want Sarah to try to turn it around on him. I think him not going into that apartment was the smartest thing that he ever did. He probably knows Sarah very, very well. And the fact that he's waiting outside for the police, like he is going by the book for this, you know? So most of what we know about Sarah's story um, were not from when she was at the scene of the crime because... You know, this is when emotions are fresh. She just got confirmation that George is dead. The walls should be closing in on her. Like her boyfriend of three years is dead. This should have been this ugly, heartbreaking moment. But instead, Sarah was fixated, preoccupied on getting her hands on a cold glass of Dr. Pepper. I'm not even kidding you. I'm not even kidding you. She was talking about being thirsty for Dr. Pepper for just way too long of this body cam footage. She says, I really need something to drink. I got my Dr. Pepper on the counter. She kept complaining that she had cotton mouth and that she just wanted to go slip inside an active crime scene where she is the alleged killer. She just wants to slip inside and grab her can of Dr. Pepper that was on the counter. The officers obviously refused this request because... I don't know, a whole long list of reasons. But Sarah still tries to approach the house. Presumably, she's trying to duck under the crime scene tape to get her Pepsi, her little Dr. Pepper. But the officers basically tell her, back up, like, back it up. 
the officers, I mean, it was so annoying to the point where she wouldn't even answer any questions. She's just demanding Dr. Pepper. They even asked Brian, the ex-husband, to check his car to see if he had a spare water bottle in there. He comes back empty-handed. And later, when the officer has to go back into the house, Sarah's telling her, please get me my Dr. Pepper. I have cotton mouth right now. The officer does not bring the Dr. Pepper out or water because, I mean, I don't know. I imagine anything inside of that house, I wouldn't want to bring it out or touch it. Yeah. It's just, you know. Yeah, you never know what that Dr. Pepper is. Yeah, now it's part of the, the scene. There could be evidence. There could be DNAs. Exactly. Like, I, I just feel like there was too much going on. There's literally a dead body inside. This officer is not caring about your thirst levels. So what does Sarah do? She goes over to the corner of the house, and I wish I was making this up. She goes over there and reaches down towards like a hose spigot. Basically, it's a faucet on the outside on the ground floor apartment where you can attach one end of a hose to it and you can water some flowers. But right now, it's just a faucet and it's pretty low to the ground and it's attached to the house. It's a very uncomfortable position. Sarah straddles the bushes to get closer to the house, bends down and drinks the water from the spigot. The whole thing is kind of strange. Like your boyfriend is dead and you're just so thirsty. Like it's kind of weird. There's a speculation that she's putting on this whole show of thirst so that the officers will just let her inside where she could potentially grab her phone or do other things. Potentially delete something off her phone. We're going to get into that later. Other people think that she's just doing it for attention. The way that she talks to the officers, this whole situation, it looks like she's obsessed with attention. If you're being questioned by police, you have a paper-thin story about how you forgot you were playing hide-and-seek with your boyfriend, let him suffocate to death after you locked him in a suitcase, I would imagine the last thing you should logically be doing is acting so nonchalant and bizarre about his death and being focused on drinking water in the most strange way possible. She also asks for a cigarette a couple of times. So to a lot of people, it feels like she just wants everyone to pay attention to her. Or she just wants to go inside to grab something from the crime scene. Now, I'm going to kind of give you, this is so out of order, but I'm going to give you a little bit of um, context for who Sarah is. Later in an interrogation, the police officers are talking about Georgia's death and the abuse and all of that. And she makes it a point to mention that she has been called everything but a white woman. By, by George? or uh, By George, by his family, by society. The fact that she's sitting there in the middle of a murder investigation and complaining about how she has been called everything but a white woman. She's playing victim. Yeah, I think that should tell you kind of the personality of Sarah Boone. Even mm. if that were true, even if that is a valid concern, this is literally a murder investigation right now, like someone died. So this is hopefully going to give you context for everything that happens next. And Sarah is just so nonchalant, so nonchalant. I mean, even when the police first arrive at the scene, she's not emotional. She's not crying. And in fact, when the police get there, she sees her property manager, I guess, walking around. And she's like, oh, that's my property manager. Should I go tell them what happened? This is the most bizarre reaction ever. And this is right after the police arrive. And they're like, your boyfriend is dead. That's so weird because she knows that she's the suspect right now. Yes. I think she's, she's so nonchalant. I think she's overly confident. The, that she can get away? Yes. Because the whole time she thinks that her justification of it was unintentional, I fell asleep, is more than enough. I don't know what kind of reality she lives in, but to her, she felt like that was enough. She just, that's her whole thing. During the whole interrogation, she just keeps scheming. But it was unintentional as if 
the cops are gonna be like you know what you're right it's so weird so she's like should I go tell my property manager what just happened and they're like no we'll do that later that's not the point right now So anyway, let's get into Sarah's story about what happened and why George was in the suitcase. And it actually starts with her relationship to George, which just the way she describes it is conflicting at best. She said, you know, we've been doing really good, like really good lately. I don't think you guys understand. He used to come at me. He would come at me and he would get belligerently drunk. And I have proof of the abuse on my phone. But recently we've been good. Like our last fight was a month ago when he hit me with a curtain rod. Hey, we're not really off to a great start, but it keeps going. Sarah says that they've been good, but then goes on to give a list of injuries that he had ever given her. And she sits there and she's like, bloody fingers, a split forehead, he split my nose. And I, oh, I've got this. And she pulls up her little jeans and she shows her ankle. I don't know if Brian told you about this, but I had to have surgery. It got really bad where I had to go for like four or five times again to the hospital for checkups. The police officer asks her straight up, like, why are you still with George then? which I personally don't like this question to be asked to domestic violence victims, but I get why they would do this in a murder investigation. And I find her response to be interesting. For the first time, Sarah gets emotional and it has nothing to do with George. They're like, why are you still with George after all of this? And Sarah says, I really love him. I really do. And I feel like I could just help him, which I did because he's come a long way, really. He came a long way from where he was with everything he's been dealing with. I've really helped him. She starts getting a little bit more aggressive, slapping her leg as she's talking. Like, I've bailed him out of jail three times. I've gone to every single hearing in every single arraignment. Everything I did for him, I've gone to see all of his public defenders. I've gone to the state. I've done everything for him because I'm trying to help him. Because I have, I had hope in him and he was trying. He was really, really, really trying. You know, he just starts to think about things and he gets really overwhelmed. And it's like the next thing you know, he's drinking. And I'm like, oh, man, I know where this is going to go. So I'm going to go upstairs and read a book or I'm going to go for a bike ride or something. Because and she starts getting aggressive again because I don't want to drink. I don't want to drink. Now, this is wild, but Sarah talks about how great of a mom she is and how she hates drinking because she wants to stay sharp to take care of her son and basically says George is not as great as her. Basically, she goes on to say, you know, because I have to wake up the next morning and do things. I have to tend to Logan. I have to take him to school. I have all these things to do, which side note, Logan is not his real name. Um, It's a different name in the interrogation if you watch the full clip. I didn't want to use his real name. Anyway, I have all these things to do. And I guess George doesn't know how to maintain himself. Whereas I can do 50 things at once. And I still know 50 more things I need to get done. He can't process like that. So he would literally, well, not literally, but have smoke come out of his ears. So the next thing you know, he doesn't want to deal with it. So he drinks. Like the whole thing, George just passed away. He died because of you. And the fact that you're comparing yourself to George and how you're this great person and how you're helping. I just, it's so narcissistic. I don't Mm -hmm. even know what to say. It's so gross. It, I mean, I can't even, I didn't even know people could do that with a straight face and like really put their heart and soul into it. Then she goes on to vent about how George's ex-wife was quote bonkers. She starts getting riled up again and superheated, just ranting about how George's ex-wife constantly asked him for money, how she stressed him out. And like there's a part where she's like, all she wants is like money, 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 money. She then proceeds to praise herself for buying George puzzles and paint 
because it helps him take his mind off the stress so he doesn't drink. The police straight up ask her, what does George's ex-wife have anything to do with this? Let's go back to the night in question. So when asked about the night in question, Sarah says, so last night, we were hanging out, listening to music, which I don't particularly like George's music taste. She says, and I quote, because it's rough around the edges. Again, just constantly dissing the victim for no reason, just putting herself up on this pedestal. And she naturally guided them into painting instead. Instead of listening to this rough around the edges music, she wanted to paint. It's a soothing activity that they both enjoy. They would hang up their little paint around the house. And it was a way for them to connect. So as they're painting, they're sharing a bottle of wine, talking about their relationship, laughing, having a good time. According to Sarah, at least, she said that they were playing movie trailers in the background. They're having good conversation. Sarah said that the interactions were happy. They made her happy. They felt like they were on the same page for once. However, she was adamant. Keep this in mind because her story changes later. She was so set that she did not get drunk. She said, I don't get drunk. I can't get drunk, honestly. Number one, I don't want to get drunk. I don't like feeling out of control. I was not drunk. No, I was not drunk. So a million times, she's reiterating she doesn't like to get drunk. She wasn't drunk. She can say lies with such confidence. It's really bizarre. How how do you say that with a straight face? Yes. And the fact that she's just basically shit-talking the victim with such a straight face and then putting herself on a pedestal is beyond me. Like, how do people do that in a serious way? So this is very conflicting for the police because Brian, Sarah's ex-husband, had already told them at the crime scene, that Sarah has no self-control when it comes to drinking. Like, she's the type, if she gets one sip, she has to drink till she passes out. There's no stopping her. The police were inclined to believe Brian over Sarah, but they let her keep going. She said while they were doing arts and crafts, they went out on the porch to drink some more wine. And, well, mainly George was drinking and smoking cigarettes. And after it got dark outside, they thought, why don't we do a spontaneous game of hide-and-seek? George allegedly said, tag, you're it, to Sarah. And this is strange, but Sarah said since she was it, since she was the seeker, she went upstairs to the shower to hide. I mean, I guess she's trying to say like she went up to the shower to count. But George never came upstairs to look for her. So she got bored, came back downstairs, and she went up to George, who saw a suitcase lying down on the floor downstairs in the living room. The suitcase was originally never there. Apparently, the suitcase lived in the closet, but George had taken it out earlier to donate some of Logan's clothes. So donate some of Sarah's kids' clothes that he had grown out of. Sarah claimed George thought it would be hilarious if he got in there to hide from her while they were playing hide-and-seek. He just needed her help in hiding. So he crawled in the suitcase on his own accord, allegedly, and he thought it would be funny. That's what Sarah said. She said that she went along with him and thought to herself, I'm just going to joke with him and zip him up. She claimed that they were both laughing about it. Giggle, gaggle, hee hee, so funny. But then she fell asleep. She said, I zipped him up. I made sure to leave a little hole for his fingers to get through so that he could unzip it from the inside. And later she would change this part of the story and state that the zipper was broken so that there was also a paperclip on the inside for George to use to open the suitcase. Which like side note, that doesn't even make sense to me because if the zipper is broken, why would there be a paperclip on the inside? If the zipper is broken, wouldn't you clip the paperclip to the outside zipper so that you could pull it open? And usually the inside of the zipper tab is very flat and smooth. Like how do you attach a paperclip to it? Yeah. I mean, maybe there's a way and I just can't envision it, but it's weird. George hid in the suitcase and Sarah said that she started thinking about something else and just completely forgot about him. Wandered upstairs and waited for him to come to bed. 
just think about the mental cartwheels. She thinks about something else, forgets about him, goes to bed and is like, hmm, I wonder when George is coming up. And she stated, and I quote, the problem is, the problem is, I fell asleep. She said that she fell asleep before he joined her in the bed. She was so exhausted from the night before, she didn't even wake up until about noon or so. And even when she woke up, she laid in bed for a little while before coming downstairs, which is why she missed all of her ex-husband's phone calls that morning. She didn't discover George's body until it was too late. She said she came downstairs and that's when she realized, oh fuck, he's still in the suitcase still. She's touching her face as she tells this to the police like this, like, oh my God, oh fuck, she's still in the suitcase still. Like both of her hands are up near her cheeks. She's acting shocked and stressed, but I don't really see the emotion translating naturally. Like it feels, it feels incredibly forced. Her eyebrows are crinkled. She's touching her face. But it almost seems like a caricature of like, I was so shocked at myself. The police questioned her further on that statement because, I don't know, like, what the hell are you saying? And she whines, I fell asleep. Like, she whines. She whines about how all they did was do puzzles, arts and crafts, share a bottle of wine, and play hide and seek. And that's all that happened. She repeats, that's all that happened. She tells the same story over and over and over again. And each time it becomes even more unbelievable. She reiterates that she forgot he was in the suitcase, went upstairs, fell asleep at around 1230. The way she says she forgot he was in the suitcase is just bizarre. Like just the way she keeps trying to put that into the police. At one point, she even states to homicide detectives, all they did was play hide and seek. And I quote, I don't know what happened. I don't know what happened. The police ask her, why did you choose to call your ex-husband before you called the police? Because it was actually on his urging that she called the police. She just says, I don't know what else to do. She also states that she did perform CPR all morning after calling the police. She's a lot more rambly about all of this, but so far, this is her version of events of what happened the night of George's murder and death. But she goes on to paint herself as the victim during the interrogation. Something I found interesting to note is Sarah says me and I way more than she references George in the entire interrogation. She's very quick to tell officers that she was scared for her life now that George was dead. And they ask her, why? And she said that George's family hate her. They terrify her. They call her the blue-eyed white devil. She stated his family would never believe it was accidental and that they were going to kill her for it. She literally tells detectives, I just want you guys to know I'm afraid for my life. Can you fucking believe? Like, yeah. Someone died because of you and you turned around and starting to make it about yourself. And like tell the detectives, you're so scared you might lose your life. Like it's so beyond wow. me. Like basically telling the detectives, you guys need to help protect me. She keeps telling them and reiterating, they're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. They're going to kill me. This was not intentional. They're not going to understand that. They're not going to accept that. They're going to kill me. She also verifies that the officers won't be calling and letting George's family know without telling her first. She's like, oh, you guys are going to tell me first before you tell them, right? so weird but she claims that she needs to know when they're going to tell george's family because they live nearby and she needs to go into hiding or something personally i don't think that's why i think that she might not be able to tell this lie to them because the police don't know her so maybe she feels like she can control the narrative she can paint herself to be this person that she's not the ultimate victim but maybe she knows that that wouldn't fly with george's family 
And she tells him, I hope you guys know, again, I'm really scared. She also asks if they tell his family today or tomorrow. And when the detectives tell her that they need to alert George's family today as it's the law, Sarah starts running her hands through her hair as if it's the world's biggest inconvenience to her. It's also just so strange that she keeps telling them, like, what, what are you going to tell the parents? She asks, like, what are you going to tell them? What are you going to tell them? What are you going to say is the reason for the death? It's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard. She also keeps reiterating that none of this was intentional and that she's scared. She states outright they're going to think I killed him. They've always, always just said that. They call me the blue-eyed white dragon. That's what they called me. They don't want him with me, so he's basically no longer around his family because he chooses me over them, even though I've encouraged him numerous times to go over to his family. And she goes on to rant about how she has nobody to stay with tonight to be safe. Basically saying like she thinks George's family are going to hunt her down and kill her tonight. And she says, my parents, my grandparents, they're all dead. I have nobody. She says she's all alone. She goes on to rant more about George's ex-wife, the mother of his children, calling her evil and telling the police how she won't let George see his own children or talk to his own children. It's just... I really don't think that she's in a position to be criticizing anybody else when you are the reason that someone is dead. Sarah goes on to later contradict herself by stating that George talked to his daughter that night that he died, which he does every single night. So does his ex-wife not allow him to talk to the kids or what? I think at this point, Sarah's just trying to throw anyone under the bus, even though they can't even be at the scene of the crime. She's just trying to divert the blame or at least divert the police officer's attention off of her or just make her seem like some sort of victim. Other notable parts were Sarah is asking the homicide detectives what they know so far. She's like asking for updates as if she's part of the team. She straight up asks, so like, why was he purple? And that is, she asks in that nonchalant way. So like, why was he purple? And even when the officers are trying to explain to her why he's purple and how painful his death must have been, how he suffocated to death and the lack of oxygen made his face purple, she looks like she's listening to the most casual conversation about the human anatomy. Like, she's like, oh, her literal boyfriend suffocated to death because of her. That's why his face was purple. And she's like, oh, like suffocation? Okay, that's why it's purple. I'm like getting riled up. There's also points where she just asks Oh, am I supposed to just wait outside the crime scene right now? She also asks if everyone that needs to show up at the crime scene on the police's end is already here. Like, it's such a weird reaction to your boyfriend's death. And even your hand in your loved one's death. She's like, so like everyone that needs to be here, are they here? Or is anybody else having to show up? And I can't even make this up. Like, I think that if this body cam footage wasn't released, I feel like maybe the police would have been exaggerating. It just sounds bizarre. Other bizarre moments in the interrogation include Sarah constantly praising herself for helping George out of his dark place while calling George a volcano that was about to erupt. She tells the officers that she asks George just to tell her what's going on with him. She said, you know, I tell him, unburden himself, put it on me. I'll sit there and try and figure it out for you like I have for almost everything. Not a worry, just tell me, get it out of you. She said things like, nobody knew George better than I did. I can say that I knew George better than he knew himself. Like, listen, these are things that I would be so pissed off to hear if I was George's loved ones. If I were his kids, if I was family members, you have the audacity to do what you did and lock him in a suitcase. And now you want to say that you knew George better than anyone, that you were the one helping him. 
She goes on to say, I helped him. I took care of him. I miss him a lot. And I didn't even sleep last night. I miss him so much. So this is the day after. The interrogation is the day after. So the morning they found him and then a whole night has passed. She's like, I couldn't even sleep last night. Again, just the way that she makes it about herself and how she helped him, took care of him. It's just really gross. She even states that her being interrogated is her trying to help George. She's like, I'm here right now. I'm still trying to help him. And the police ask her, you know, they're trying to give her an out. They're like, not out in the sense that they're going to let her go, but they're trying to give her an out for her to confess to the murder. So the police ask her, you know, it's okay, but he was abusive. Maybe it was just too much. Like, we wouldn't blame you if you stopped caring for him at one point. And Sarah responds, I never stopped caring for him. I never stopped. That's what I'm here for. I never stopped. I'm here right now and I'm still trying to help him. She goes on to brag about how George's probation officer had called her personally to tell her how grateful she was that George had someone like Sarah in her life. She said, a 42-minute phone call. The probation officer was praising me for working so hard and helping fixing him. Another key infuriating moment was Sarah looks an officer in the eye and literally says, I don't think you guys understand who I am. I mean, I've always been a straight A student. Side note, this woman is in her 40s now. I've always been a straight A student. I'm an outstanding mother to my son. I excel at everything. She says that. She literally says that verbatim. I'm not even I'm not exaggerating. So the police clearly, they want to know more about Sarah. And I mean, to a degree, they have to find out evidence that she truly didn't forget about George in the suitcase because you can't just go to court and be like, look, she's a narcissist. Look at her. She thinks she excels at everything, obviously, except hide and seek. But, you know, they have to give them something more substantial. So they bring in Brian again, Sarah's ex-husband. And he was able to paint a very good picture of who Sarah was. She's incredibly flaky when it comes to taking care of their son. She's a heavy drinker, irresponsible. I mean, these were the main reasons that they were divorced to begin with. She would get violent when she was drunk. And the police were intrigued by that. They were like, tell us more about that. What do you mean violent? Did it ever get physical? Well, she can get a bit violent when she drinks. Like, not to this extent of, like, murdering someone. I don't know what happened exactly, but yeah, she that was part of it when she got drunk. So how does Sarah act when she's drunk? I mean, she starts just getting really angry when she drinks a lot. She said last night she fell asleep talking about George's murder. And, uh, you know, there were plenty of times where she would pass out after drinking. Okay, so would she like be in the middle of something and just be out cold? Or would she go to bed? So personal opinion, I think the police are trying to um, get an idea of what was in character for Sarah when she drank a lot. Would she just pass out literally on the spot, just knock out cold? That could explain why she didn't hear George's screams or why she forgot about him. They're trying to get an idea of her behavior patterns while she's drunk because it could be useful later in court. Brian responds, yeah, it wasn't anything like she would fall over or anything, but if she was able to lie down, then she was just out. Meaning that if she got so drunk, she zipped him up and just accidentally passed out from being drunk and therefore was unable to zip him up from the suitcase. Like, that doesn't seem plausible. She made her way to the bed. Upstairs. Then Brian tells the cops a little bit about Sarah and George's relationship. He says that they were both toxic, both abusive. He tried to stay away from both of them as much as he could. There were constant domestic violence reports, and then they would bail each other out, and then it would repeat. They would get drunk, get into a fight, get upset, call the cops, and it was just really bad. George had been working at an Ace hardware store, but uh, Sarah had been unemployed for about two years. 
Brian was paying alimony. That's how she survived. And she would constantly call to ask for more money. So Sarah does not excel at everything. She's not a great outstanding mother. She's probably not even was a straight A student. She's also not a good person. Like that much is clear. But the police need to make sure that they have a strong case to prove that she murdered George, that she knew what she was doing, that it was part of her plan. And a big piece of that evidence that supported their theory, the police theory, was this not so innocent game of hide and seek. You know, I mean, even Sarah's shitty story was probably evidence. Like, the logic was just non-existent in her story. But a big piece, bigger piece, was George's autopsy. It concluded that George had scratches on his neck and back, a bruise on his shoulder and around his eyes, a cut lip and a swollen mouth and scalp like his skull was swollen. Sarah would later tell officers all the injuries were either from sex or he had fallen off his bike earlier that day. She also states that George is notorious for running into the wall. And there's like no context about that. It's, it's just really weird. She states that she hasn't laid a hand on him and she gets very adamant and very passionate. So the day of the murder, Sarah states that they had wild sex. George fell off his bike, ran into a wall. And that's like what Sarah is claiming. She said that it's mind blowing to her why he would have these injuries because all they did was paint, do puzzles, hang out and have a good time. She repeated, I have not touched him. I have not touched him. I have not touched him. But the police don't really believe her. They think that this is all evidence of some sort of blunt force trauma. Now, the internet theory about what happened is they believe that the suitcase was upstairs. Sarah put George inside or convinced him to get inside. We're going to get into theories later about why. And then pushed the suitcase down the stairs, which would explain all the injuries. My gosh. And the police argue, you know, it's just unexplainable how he got these injuries. And you were the only one with him, Sarah. And she says, I have no idea. Like 100% right hand to God. I have no idea how he got them. Nobody touched anybody. Nobody touched anybody. The police went around asking neighbors to see if that they had heard anything at all. And they had. Not only that, but the neighbors really, 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 really hated Sarah. They said that she would come home drunk every night, which goes against this whole picture she's painting of herself. She would come home in the wee hours of the morning. Sometimes she wouldn't even go to her apartment. Sometimes she would just crash on neighbors' porches. So this, again, contradicted her, saying that she never got drunk. She, she said that she likes to have her wits about her. Sometimes Sarah would be out in the hallway trying to make small talk with neighbors. They all avoided her. They really did not like her. Anyway, the night of George's murder, Sarah's next door neighbor said that he heard a series of really loud thumps at around 10.30 p.m. that night. He said that thumps were much louder than what he normally heard from their unit, which he heard a lot from their unit typically. But he still didn't pay it too much attention because like I said, Sarah's unit was known for a lot of chaos. There were typically noise disturbances and weird sounds coming from her unit. But this confirmed again the theory that the police had that George's injuries were from some sort of struggle or potentially her throwing the suitcase down the stairs with him inside of it. Which means there are even more holes now to Sarah's cute little story of just innocently playing hide and seek. But the biggest piece of evidence that the police had is what you saw in the beginning of this episode. The police had a video from Sarah's phone that Sarah had taken of George after she zipped him up in the suitcase. She took a video on her phone of him zipped up in the suitcase and he's not giggling. He's not laughing. And she's like, we were just having a good time. He he ha ha None of that is happening. The police confront her with the video and they ask, do you remember taking any videos or pictures that night? No, I don't think so. I mean, maybe I took a picture of the dog. Are you sure? 
They go through who had access to her phone, who could go through her phone. Sarah confirms again that she had no recollection of anything being on her phone from Sunday night, the night that Georgia died. She said, maybe, maybe there's videos of Georgia and the dogs dancing. But other than that, nothing I remember. Okay. Is she like super drunk? Is that why she couldn't remember? Later, she uses that excuse. I think that she thought she deleted it and they weren't Mm going to find it. Okay, well, we found something on your phone and I just want to show it to you. The officers pull up the video that Sarah took of George in the suitcase, remember? And they pull it up in their computer on like a CD disc. So it's not her phone. Keep this in mind. And this is the video where George is suffocating and screaming her name and she's just laughing. But before they can even play it, the computer battery dies. And it's like a whole thing. So the officer leaves. Sarah's alone with another officer. And she comes back and is getting the computer ready when Sarah says, you guys are scaring me. Is the video long? Because I don't know how much more I can take of this. She hunches her shoulders, looks down at her hands, and continues rambling while the police get the video ready. And she says, do I have to watch this? Like, I continuously throw up, and I don't sleep, and I I don't want to see it if that's okay. Well, it's on your phone, Sarah. You can either explain it, or we take it for what it is. Is it long? Because I don't know how much I can take. So she knows what's up now. Like Yeah. And they tell her... It's, and I feel like she has no excuses at this point. Yeah. So she'd rather not even deal with it. Oh, and it gets so cringe. Like, I know that's such a light word to use for such a heavy situation, but it's so gross how she behaves in this. Just listen, okay? So she's. they tell her it's two minutes long. Now, the police press play, and Sarah realizes what she's watching. And she immediately tells them, I don't want to watch it, please. The detectives don't care. They let it run and even played the second video that she took, which is just more of the same thing. And Sarah says, guys, this is killing me right now. Which, how do you have the audacity to say that? Both of the videos are online and they're really heartbreaking. Sarah tells the police that none of this was malicious. She said it wasn't intentional. She even gets up and tries to, this is the cringe part. She gets up and is pointing at the computer screen. She's like, there, there's a hole in the zipper for him to get out. And the police are like, we don't see it. We don't see it. And if there's a hole, why is he pressing up against the suitcase trying to get out? And why is he screaming your name? Why is he telling you he can't breathe? We don't hear him laughing. You said you guys were joking and having a blast. Sarah argues, I don't know what to tell you. I just don't know what you want me to tell you. And now they're they're starting to crack down on her. And they're saying, you know, he's begging for you to let him out. You're laughing in the beginning. And then in the end, it sounds kind of like Sarah sits back in her chair. And she declares, nope, not malicious. The officers point out, you literally tell him, fuck you, in the video. Like, what part of that is not malicious? Nope, not malicious. Okay, well then what does fuck you mean to you? My intention was not to leave him in there. Please understand that. My intention was not to leave him in there. Sarah, you told me that you guys were both joking and laughing, and in the video, he's not laughing. Nowhere in the video is he laughing or joking. In fact, he's begging. You're the only one that's laughing. You're the one saying derogatory comments like you're mad. No, please don't. And I don't mean to sound negative. Like, I don't know if I can say this, but it's like you guys are trying to feed me. Basically insinuating that she's being set up by the police right now. I'm so frustrated. Like this interrogation, I was just filled with rage watching the whole thing because it's just out of this world. Sarah claims that she doesn't remember making that video because she was drunk, which suddenly she's drunk. It contradicts everything that she said earlier that she doesn't like to drink because she likes to have her wits about her. The police point it out and she keeps arguing, well, I was drunk. I was drunk. I mean, what? Later, when she realizes that she's been caught, 
it's still about her. She says, this is horrific, okay? Horrific, horrific. I don't think I will ever be right because of this. Dealing with everything else that I have in my life right now, and now this? This was not my intention. I will put my hand on the Bible. I would never do this to him. But you did, Sarah. Not intentional. But you intentionally went up to bed. I just didn't. I was waiting for him. The detectives pushed further, asking her why she went upstairs to bed, why she didn't let him out, where was the hole she said she left in the zipper because you can't see the hole in either of the two videos. Sarah gets so frustrated, she basically explodes on the officers, which I'm pretty sure is exactly what they wanted, and she keeps accusing them of trying to portray her as something and someone that she is not. And she says, you guys are killing me right now. These are all evidence, right? Yeah. Can be used on court and people can see it and make a judgment based on that. And just the way that, I don't even know how to describe this. The fact that someone is dead, her loved one is dead, her boyfriend is dead because of her. And she still has the audacity to sit there and say things like, you guys are killing me right now. I'm like, wait, what is going on? And she says, see, it all backfired on me. Like, it's all backfired on me. And I understand the severity of it. I just, and they tell her he's dead. It's awful. I know. I know. Okay. And I'll tell you this like right now too. I will never drink alcohol again. Okay. Like I will never drink alcohol again. Wow. You realize you're the person who killed him, right? Not intentionally. I would never do that to George, but you did. Y'all are making me out to be a person that I am not. She says that she was drinking and that it's the alcohol's fault, but she just wouldn't accept any blame for what she did, even though there's video proof of it. She said it wasn't fair that the police were trying to say that she intentionally did this. She only talked about herself the entire time of the two hours. If she talked about George, it was basically shit talking George and then talking about how she was helping him. She couldn't accept that she did anything wrong, even when the detectives poked literal gaping holes in her story. I don't even know how you don't have the shame to just be like, okay, yeah, that's a good point. They will never admit fault. Never. Always deny, deny, deny. But it's it's so much more embarrassing and gross when you don't do that. It's counterintuitive because they have these massive egos Mm -hmm. and you actually look stupider by doing this. Yeah. So she did, however, agree to give DNA. She let detectives take swabs of the DNA under her fingernails, which is why a lot of people on the internet think that the the struggle wasn't in person. She pushed him down. That's why mm. she was so willing to give DNA because maybe there weren't, you know, the markings inside of her fingernails. February 25th, 2020, the day after she made the 911 call, Sarah Boone was arrested for the murder of her boyfriend. She was charged with second degree murder. Second degree is where there is intent to kill, but it's not as premeditated. Like there's not a whole plan in place, which I feel like this is a whole plan. And, you know, this doesn't make sense to me because we've done so many cases where the premeditation can happen five seconds before the crime. This feels like it happened, even if it happened five seconds before the crime, 10 minutes, an hour, like it feels, there's definitely premeditation in this. On the way to jail, just listen to the audacity here. While Sarah is being transported to jail, she asks her transport officer. Think of a list of things you would imagine Sarah Boone could have the audacity to ask for. It's going to be about her, yeah. like That's what I thought too, right? But this is so specific. She asks for a spacious cell. She trapped her boyfriend in a suitcase the size of an oven and she's demanding a spacious cell. She said it's because she gets panic attacks in small spaces. 
I, I don't even know what to say to that. Like you just stuff someone inside of a suitcase. Like what about when he was begging for his life and you just said, fuck you. You don't think that he would have liked something a little bit more spacious. Like that is wild to me that she would have the nerve of all things to ask for that. So Sarah's in jail. She gets arrested right before the pandemic hits in the U.S. So her court process is excruciatingly slow. For her, I mean. Personally, I think the more time that she spends in limbo, like the more time she has to think about how she forced her boyfriend into a, to suffocate to death in a suitcase, the better. She went through six lawyers in the course of two years. And allegedly, she just had beef with all of them, okay? So despite calling their offices every single day and sending each of them a handful of letters, Sarah was very upset that none of them really talked to her that much. In one of the earlier emails or letters, Sarah writes to her lawyer because she hasn't heard from him in a little over a month. In the first paragraph, she says, As of today, October 3rd, you have been my court-appointed attorney for almost three months, 12 weeks, and 14 days, and only spoken to me three times. She states that she knows that she's not his only client and that he's been healing from a back injury, but she also says, I'm still unaware of the difficulties you are having in communicating with me. With no communication makes my end more difficult, drawn out, and painful. Please remember how long I've been in here. She goes off on a mini tangent of how many birthdays of her sons that she's missed, which like by the time that she wrote this letter, she had been in jail for 32 months. But she writes in the letter that she missed four of her son's birthdays which like is the math math thing here. Like how many birthdays can you have in two and a half years? But that's what she wrote in the letter. So she's evil and dumb, which is arguably one of the worst combinations one can be. And I know maybe this would be a moment to feel any sympathy for Sarah, like a mom missing her son's life events. But even when she was free, she didn't have a problem ditching her son. Sarah's next letter was sent to a judge four weeks later, complaining about how her attorney wasn't talking to her. She says that her constitutional rights were being waived without her knowledge and permission. Yeah. What about Mm. George's constitutional right to life and liberty? She continues, and in this letter, Sarah writes that according to her calculations, she's been represented by the last attorney for 3,528 hours and has only spent two hours talking to him. She talks about how she's gotten, like the whole math thing that she's doing. She talks about how she's gotten letters all the way from England and how everyone with internet access knows more about the case than she does and how the sensational the trial is going to be and how she's not going to be able to get a fair trial anyway. And the words that she kept using about not knowing what's going on were, and I quote, still in the dark. Most of the letters end with paragraphs of how she's never going to give up fighting for her justice. She writes, my reason is hope, never ending, no matter what, hope. Please don't give up. I have not and will not ever. She will never have remorse about what she did. Yeah. And what's real stupid about it is remorse is one of the biggest things if she ever were able to get probation that they look for. So I feel like it's honestly a good thing, but it's crazy, like never, ever. So her newest attorney has recently revealed that he's going to go for the battered spouse defense. The idea of the battered spouse defense or battered woman syndrome, as it used to be more frequently called, is that if a victim is in an abusive household, there's a constant fear of danger. So therefore, it's justified in a sense that they are eliminating the threat, 
even if there might not be imminent danger. So it's a bit different from a self-defense defense because for self-defense, you literally have to be in immediate danger. Like someone has to be holding a knife to your throat. You have to fear for your life in that very moment, which Sarah surely did not while they were innocently playing hide and seek, according to her. So they're arguing that she was in fear for her life every second of every moment she lived with George because he was abusive. It was to be expected that she would probably take this approach, or at least her attorney would take this approach, because it'd be very difficult to cast doubt on her being the killer. Like, what are you going to do? Her attorney is going to try to convince the court that Sarah killed George because she was afraid that one of these days he would kill her first. So even though her taking this defense was to be expected, the internet had a lot of things to say about it. There are a ton of Reddit threads on this case about the crime itself, but also a lot on the interrogation tapes. And there's a ton of speculations on what exactly happened. Now, side note, Reddit is not a credible source. So do that with what you will. But this is just what the internet is saying. According to the internet, um, there were rumors that a lot of Sarah's previous attorneys, because she's been through six at this point, they dropped her because she refused to take this battered woman defense. For the first couple of attorneys, she kept feeling like the not intentional justification was enough. She felt like she could go to court with that. And the jury would be like, but it wasn't intentional. Yeah. Now, this is one of the main reasons that I bring up Reddit. Netizens dug up Sarah's 2016 Facebook post where she posted a picture of a four-year-old kid zipped in a suitcase. What? Yeah. We're not sure if it's her son in the suitcase, but her son was four in 2016. Commentators speculate that the suitcase was like this established punishment in their home. So maybe Sarah would lock her son in the oh suitcase God. as a way to punish him. Maybe Sarah locked George in the suitcase to punish him for being abusive with her. And I would imagine maybe George was like, okay, I'm going to spend like a minute in the suitcase. So he let her lock her up in there. But maybe, this is speculation, she threw him down the stairs in the suitcase and then recorded it and wouldn't let him out. Because I just don't see the hide and seek thing playing out. I just don't see how he would have done mm -hmm. that. Police were able to find out about this 2016 incident and they stated that it was consensual, which like, I don't know how it's consensual when you're talking about locking a four-year-old in a suitcase, but I guess they were like, they just don't want to pursue it legally is all. I don't know if it's going to be brought up in court. I don't know if it can be. Nothing is going to be done about that so far from what I know. Twitter also blew up with threads about Sarah only being charged with second degree murder and not first degree. They're like, Really? Come on. Who leaves someone in a space where getting air is almost impossible without intending for them to die? That's kind of what we have now. And we will just have to wait until the trial starts in August for the whole story to come out. And hopefully the trial will bring justice and closure to George and his family. I don't know if the truth of what happened that night may never come to light. But at the end of the day, like how Sarah killed George is not the important part. The important part is that she killed him. And now George Torres a father, a brother, a son, is never going to become the better man that he was trying so hard to be. And I think that's the saddest part of this story. Like, he was not a perfect victim. I don't think there is such a thing as a perfect victim. He was obviously flawed. There were things that he clearly should not have done. But I think it's sad the fact that he was trying so hard. And then she just took it all away. I just wish she had a chance to do better without Sarah. Please let me know your thoughts on this case. And if you're watching the video version on YouTube on Rotten Mango or on Spotify Rotten Mango Video, what are your thoughts on the video footage? A lot of people were saying that she just looks so guilty in the videos. Like, do you think the same thing? Do you feel like maybe we shouldn't go there because innocent until proven guilty? I would just be very interested to know. And with that being said... 
Please stay safe. And I will see you guys on Wednesday for the main episode. Bye.